Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 28, I think we're on. Uh, my name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com, it's Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. So this is where I normally uh, ask Fuleman how he's doing. Um, but today I actually wanted to just take a quick moment to talk to you about uh, something, uh, an experience that I had recently that uh, I guess I wanted to share with people. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I went up to... Muskoka, uh, north of Toronto, to volunteer for a camp called Camp Uchiegis or Camp Uch. Um, camp Uch is a camp run for uh, kids ages 6 to 18, essentially, um, who are in various stages of cancer care. Uh, so these are all kids who have cancer or had cancer and have, you know, have beaten and whatnot. And it's a chance for them to kind of just be kids, uh, to go up to summer camp, do the things that all kids like to do. And uh, Uch is a nonprofit. It's funded largely through donations and it's helped run largely through volunteers. As mentioned, I had the chance to, to volunteer with them this summer. Uh, it was my first summer volunteering for them and it was an amazing experience. So gratifying. It's a lot of fun uh, to see these kids who have to face something that, you know, is obviously quite terrible and quite, um, quite a large specter on their life. It's, it's fun to see them just be kids and just enjoy themselves and forget about uh, the very large issues that are facing them in their day-to-day -day lives. So I, I just wanted to, I guess, briefly talk about that. Um, Camp Uch is always looking for new volunteers. Uh, if you are interested and you have uh, the time to do it, you can volunteer uh, in the summer like I did. They have overnight programs during the year. They have all-year programs. All you need to do is go to ooch.org, O-O-C-H.org, and all the information will be there for you. Uh, Uch survives in large part because they get a huge amount of volunteers who are willing to uh, help out the program and a lot of the magic of Uch is from the volunteers so if you think it's something that you would enjoy uh, please give it a give it a try it's something that I certainly enjoyed and something that I found a lot of value in and yeah it's just a great thing to do so with all that said Fulman, how have you been doing I have been doing well I have done nothing of even remotely comparable social utility to what you did I've Mostly sat around and done my job and eaten, eat, I was going to say eaten, which is not even like I ate. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a tough podcast if I can no longer conjugate verbs. Uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, it's been uh, quiet and overheated and I have been like that guy on The Simpsons who's like the Caribbean money laundering guy who's in like the white <laughs> suit and just anytime anything happens, his attitude is, it, is, is it's too hot today. Um, so yeah, that's been me. Uh, I haven't achieved all that much, but in all seriousness, that is a, a really great cause. And if you have the time, I really recommend helping out with that. So we did a thing where we solicited questions on Twitter for this podcast. Uh, we got quite a lot of feedback. People had a lot of things that they wanted to say. So we're going to try and get through all of those, answer them to the best of our ability. And uh, I'm going to do them in a sort of a particular order because we have a couple that might take us a bit longer. And so they'll be more towards the end. But we're going to try and do them. So our first question, which I view as a personal attack, uh, was from Home Not a Hotel on Twitter. Asked, why does Fuleman pronounce Russian names so weird? And why are you, that's you, Arvin, uh, slandering the Bay Area with your inaccurate weather assessments? So I'd like to say, first of all, that I am terrible at pronouncing almost everything because I'm one of those people who reads a very great deal and does not have to say a lot of these things regularly. 
Um, there's no excuse for how bad I actually am at pronouncing Russian names. I'd like to promise I'm going to get better, but in, in all seriousness, in the heat of the moment, when the mic is in front of me, I just start panicking, and I say the first syllable, and then I just sort of improvise. Um, I've been working on <laughs> Semyon Durargachinsev. Is that right? I don't know. I hope it is. Um, I apologize to anyone of Russian origin or who is remotely connected with Russian culture for what I have done to your very beautiful and, and eloquent names. You don't deserve what I've done, but the Leafs do have Russian players, and so I'm going to just try and struggle through. What about the Bay Area, Arvind? Why do you, you know, slander them? No, I, I, I stand by this. Bay, Bay Area weather is not what people mm. think of when they talk about California weather. The weather is good. I mean, it, look, it's better than Toronto's weather, but that's a very, very low bar. It's like right. perennially 18 degrees and overcast there. Yeah, that, you know, actually, I don't mind that at all. However, so how often have you been to the Bay Area? Because I feel like we may be challenged on your bona fides on this one. I've been there four or five times. Okay. Yeah, it's not like I'm, nice. I'm never, it's not like I went there once and it rained three times. Like, I've, I've been there a decent amount. I actually, I went to Paris when I was like 12 mm-hmm. um, for like three days. And it rained all of the days. And I don't know if we were just in the bad part of town, but my vision of Paris has ever since been that, like, it's basically garbage. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> this is, like, one of the consensus most beautiful cities on the planet. And I'm just like, look, it rained three days in a row. Uh, I don't know uh, what else to say. It does not seem like a good city to me, and I stand by that, even though I have no evidence or logic behind it. You know, I've actually heard from a few people that Paris is kind of an overrated travel spot i've never been so i can't really comment it's so touted that i think there's a natural letdown that maybe comes out of that um but yeah anyway so our answers to your questions are one because i'm a failure and two arvin stands by his controversial hot takes on the bay area exactly (laughs) um the next one is the lines you would have versus the lines babcock will actually play for the Leafs. This is an interesting one because yeah. we've been asked variations on this. This came up when we signed Tavares. We started sort of daydreaming about it. It's really hard to make a bad answer with these lines. Yeah. Really hard. Yeah. It, like, I mean, assuming you play everyone a perfect amount, like an amount, not a perfect amount, but an amount that's like relative to their skill level and you're not playing like the fourth line 18 minutes a night or something it you can Mm -hmm. really make any combination of players and it'll still be a pretty good team yeah like i i would say maybe the only concern and this is like a trivial concern it's very much like a first world hockey team problem but uh i would be a little worried about connor brown because i don't think he's quite on the level that maybe he's thought to be He's a useful kind of utility player. He's not bad by any means. You can slot him in uh, in a lot of places, but I think as kind of a steadying presence and a reliable workhorse sort of player, Babcock might be tempted to overplay him a little bit when realistically, I think Connor Brown, if you sort the lines by talent level, he's your fourth line right wing. Like I think he, well, I mean, he's obviously behind Nylander and Marner. Yeah. And I think he's definitely behind Kasperi Kapanen at this point. So... Given the strength of our centers, really the fourth line is not going to play very much at even strength, or it shouldn't. 
So if we have a concern with like what Babs is actually going to do, it's that. It, it, yeah, it, it's, it's very hard to find a problem here. I mean, Brown versus Kapanen is kind of interesting because you know, I'm someone who's kind of been down on Brown, I think, relative to a lot of other people, especially after his rookie year, because I thought he was kind of very much overhyped after, after his rookie year. But if you look at his, his scoring numbers and whatnot, he, he basically scores like a solid middle six guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, granted, he's had very good line mates pretty much his entire career, except for the time he's been on the fourth line. Right, he's yeah. last year he was uh, with Kadri for some time. He was with Matthews for uh, a little bit, and then he was with Bozak and JVR in a kind of sheltered role and performed pretty well there. There's there's less um, unknown with with him versus Kapanen. Mm-hmm. So I'm not like, actually sure if I would put Kapanen above Brown yet. I I think I would just because Kapanen's skill set seems like it lends itself to those high higher lines than, than Browns does, but I don't think it's necessarily a given. No, and I'm not sure it's going to happen right out of the box, is what I'm thinking, but just Kapanen's speed yeah. is so deadly. Now, granted, you know, and we've talked about this before, this is a guy who had nine points. That doesn't mean that he's bad. That doesn't mean that that's representative. But yeah, I mean, we maybe we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. And again, you know, if your worst problem is playing Connor Brown as your third line right wing... You are having luxury problems. Yeah, I mean, like Carter, Carter Brown's honestly he's fine in that role, really. Like, it's, yeah, I think he's yeah. probably an average or above average third liner. Yeah, I think that would be that fair would, to say. Yeah. I mean, we had we've had like an above average third line, and will continue to do so mm-hmm. um, throughout his whole tenure. But yeah, uh, so I guess my takeaway with like the lines we have versus the lines Babcock will actually play is. I'm open to what he's going to do. He said he would play Marner with Matthews, which I think is kind of a concession to keep Matthews happy, maybe. I like Nylander, Marner, uh, sorry, I like Hyman, Matthews, Nylander as a top line, and I would not break it up. Mm-hmm. But Wait, he said he's going to play I'm kinda Marner with it. Matthews? I thought he was going to play Marner with Tavares. Did I have that backwards? Yeah, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's keeping he, Nylander and, Mar- and Matthews together. And then Marner he, with Tavares. Actually... I agree with Babcock more than I even realized. So, yeah, uh, in that case, I don't think we're going to have too many controversies. I mean, it'll be the same Leafs Twitter issue it always is, which is that Josh Levo is probably not going to end up playing. And people yeah, will to. yeah, people will be like, oh, why are we playing Tyler Ennis over Josh Levo? And like, I get it to some extent because Ennis is not a terribly exciting player, I don't think. Um, and there's there's an argument for saying, okay, you know, Ennis, you know exactly what he's going to be, you know, barring a miracle where he regains his 20-goal form, which I think is relatively unlikely. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas Olivo, you know, maybe if you play him, maybe he can show you, he can surprise a little more. There's a bit more, you know, positive, there's a bit more room for upside there than, uh, than with Ennis. And I think that's valid, but it's also something where I, I can't muster the energy to be worked up about who plays fourth line left wing. If you want to play Olivo there, go ahead. I'm not going to be upset. If Babcock plays Ennis there, and I think he is more likely to play Ennis than Levo there just because it's Levo. I mean, Levo's had enough... Levo's had, what, two and a half years now to impress Babcock, and it hasn't really happened yet, and I just don't think it will. No. uh, uh, Josh Levo is in that unfortunate position where he has to count on an injury. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the only way that it seems realistic. Or we finally waive him. And uh, I, I just... I noticed this the other day... And it's like the saddest stat. Josh Levo uh, has had five NHL seasons in which he appeared 
his games played went up every year. They really did. Like, he's slowly been increasing. He reached a high of 16 games played last year. He played 16 games After five years. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I did not realize. I have no concept of those 15 games. <laughs> yeah, but like his um, his arc was like, starting in 2013-14, he had 7 games, next year 9 games, next year 12 games, next year 13 games, next year 16 games. I believe by the time he is 38, Josh Leva will play a full season. <laughs> That's the way that that trend is projecting. But oh until then, yeah, he's going to get displaced by Tyler Ennis, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Yeah. Uh, this was another one from, uh, that was Bobby Bryce 18 on Twitter. Uh, way too early conference finals matchups. I don't know. I, I'm afraid to ever look past Tampa because Tampa scares me more than any other team. And if we can beat Tampa, the world is our oyster. Like, if we can beat Tampa, we can beat anybody. Yeah. Um, if I was just going to pull names out of a hat, I, would, I mean, and that's what it is at this point. I'd probably mm. say Tampa's still the favorite over us, I would say, uh, mm-hmm. to come out of the Atlantic. I'm going to just kind of ignore the potential for crossovers here, just because it gets too annoying. Uh, the Metro yeah. seems wide open. You know what? I'm going to kind of go with a bit of a dark horse here and say Philly and to yeah. come out of the Metro. I, th- I think they're really good. Philly um, has a lot of really exciting players. They do. And I th- the thing is, is that last year, the- I thought they were going to be a dark horse. To be better than they were. I mean, they, they didn't they do bad kinda, last year, right? They, they, they were a wild card no. team. Um, but I thought that they were going to be, like, competitive with, like, the top of the division. Like, I thought the division was opening up, honestly. Yeah. And uh, they didn't quite do it. They have a lot of names. I mean, Couturier has really come into his own as a Selkie center. Giroux had a resurgence playing with him. They've got Patrick, who I think... A lot of people sort of slept on Nolan Patrick. Like, he came into the NHL and he was merely, like, yeah, I, he had, I think, 30 points as an 18-year-old rookie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll make sure I'm right about that. But, uh, yeah, 30 and, 70, uh, and 73 games. And people were like, oh, that's kind of disappointing. And I think, you know, Matthews has maybe skewed perceptions of what rookies are supposed to do in their first years immediately after being drafted. Like... He's a perfectly good player, and he's going to get better. Yeah. And then, you know, they have uh, Ivan Provorov, who's terrific on the back end. So, you know, there's a lot to like about Philly. It's just, why weren't they better last year? <laughs> yeah, they were like a weirdly hot and cold team, weren't they? Like, didn't they have ridiculous winning streaks and losing streaks combined into one? Like, they were an odd Yeah, team. I recall that being a thing. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, the, uh, you know, Pittsburgh is still pretty good. They still have... Um, possibly the best forward group in the NHL, if it's not us. Uh, Washington, I think. This is weird to say about the Cup champs. I'm like, I'm not afraid of Washington at all anymore. Like, I just don't think that they're as good as they once were. They're still a good team. They're, I mean, they're still very good, but yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's weird because they've taken such clear steps back, but they were descending from by far the best team in the league. So they're still very mm-hmm. good. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I think the metro is kind of wide open. If we move west, my pick is Winnipeg out of the central. They're they're yeah. too good and too young. I I know they're now missing like they don't have uh, Stashny anymore. So mm-hmm. Little is their second line center, and he's good, but you know um, he is somewhat injury prone. I think so. Yeah, it, it, it's tough, but you know they're getting another 
year of growth on, uh, for Connor, for Line, for Ehlers, for Morrissey, for Truba. Uh, Schleifle is firmly in his prime. Wheeler and Bufton might conceivably be a little worse, but they're just so deep everywhere. So I think they're yeah. my they're my bet as long as their goaltending holds up. And then in the Pacific, I don't know, man. The, <laughs> the Pacific sucks. Let Vegas I, I again. I defy anyone. Like, yeah, me. I don't know. <laughs> We've talked about this before. I just, I'm gonna go to my grave insisting that Vegas is not real. Like, they're fine. Yeah. But I, on the other hand, the Pacific is like. It's a lot of uninspiring like, who is teams. There? I, I, I don't take any Randy Carlisle team seriously. So the Ducks are, uh, although you. they have a very good roster. Um, yeah. I, I I guess the Sharks are kind of a good default bet. The Kings as well. Yeah. Vegas, it, it's hard to say because they they came out of nowhere. And even now, they're, they were kind of driven by some incredible star performances from players who you wouldn't expect that from. And I, I'm reasonably mm-hmm. sure someone like Marchessault will still be good. But, like, yeah. if they don't get 43-girl William Carlson, what happens? I, I don't know. So, I'll say San Jose yeah. for now. I think that that's sensible. I... Okay. This is going to be a sucker bet, probably. Um, and I really, really didn't like the Dougie Hamilton trade. But I could see Calgary rising through that division. I think that they were stronger than they appeared last year. And I think that they have a lot to like on that roster. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to get goaltending, obviously. Uh, but I still really like a lot about their team. And I think that in a weak division, they could surprise. Yeah. Edmonton, I just, I don't like betting against Connor McDavid. But then, you know. <laughs> I think Edmonton will be so, a playoff team this year. Just because. Yeah. Like, as long as. Talbot doesn't implode like he did last season and their special teams were really bad last year I think uh, which you would expect some bizarre. regression to yeah. like to being even if they go from worst in the league to like below average that's quite a few goals they're gaining mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's just hard to bet against the team that has by far the best player in the world yeah so I mean, they're definitely going to make it. But yeah, I'll say for my uh, my conference final picks in the West, I will say Winnipeg versus uh, Calgary, because what the hell? No one will remember if I'm wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I hope. Um, yeah, so the next one, uh, this is from Jesmond Jester, had several questions here. Uh, Darnell Nurse was just sort of presented, which is interesting. I would not mind acquiring Darnell Nurse I can't see now actually I should preface this okay Darnell Nurse is a very talented young defenseman who is RFA right now yeah for the Edmonton Oilers he's 23 he shoots left he's big uh he had a good year last year after maybe being a little disappointing relative to his reputation he was drafted uh seventh overall in 2013 so he was big things were expected of him but you know he's a great player i'd love to add him i don't think that he's the kind of player that the oilers are going to mess up yeah now these are famous last words with peter chiarelli but like he's a big physical defenseman who can play a solid kind of game that's the kind of guy that i think chiarelli is going to like um, so I don't think we're going to get him, unfortunately. 
Yeah. Um, when I saw yeah. this, I was sort of confused. I was like, what is there to discuss about Darnowner specifically? Um, he seems fine. Yeah, I agree. He's an RFA. The Oilers probably won't mess that up. And even if they did, we don't really have the cap space to pay him unless we want to give up Jake Gardner right now. Um, yeah, which a lot of people do, as it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should actually just discuss that discuss that now. Should we? Okay. Uh, so we were putting this off, but uh, we got a question from Gus Katsaros, um, who is a quite talented uh, systems writer. He does some work for Maple Leafs Hot Stove. Um, I like a lot of his stuff. And he had a question saying, is Timothy Liljegren or Travis Dermott the replacement for Jake Gardner after this season or a combination of both? Um, so I'm going to say probably Dermott is, yeah, going to end up taking Jake Gardner's job just because I don't think we're going to be able to extend him. Uh, I talked a lot in a very long article about why I don't think we should trade Jake Gardner. Um, the article is called Stop Trying to Trade Jake Gardner, fittingly <laughs> enough, if you'd like to uh, to look it up. But the Coles notes of that were basically, we're the kind of team that would be adding a rental defenseman. It doesn't make a, a lot of sense for us to just give a defenseman away. The teams who we would be giving a rental defenseman to, in other words, a defenseman in the final year before he goes unrestricted, are teams who are in a position comparable to us. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's hard for us to benefit from where we're sitting as a cup contending team, as a team that really should be trying to win it all this year. Um by dealing him out because he's exactly the kind of player we should get back. Do you know what I'm saying? Now, there are people who don't value Jake Gardner at that level, or they're saying, I'd like to make a lefty-righty swap, um, where you know we deal Jake Gardner for a right-handed defenseman of more team control or a little less ability, but whatever. Or, or we trade him for futures and then trade futures for that right defenseman, like a three-team trade or something like that. Yeah, and... I'd like to say that, you know, if you can draw up one of these and it makes sense to you, I won't say for sure that it's, you know, totally undoable. I could not find an answer to that the, that I thought was satisfactory. The only one that seems sort of reasonable to me is someone like, like Chris Tanev. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a, a commenter actually brought that up in, in the comment section of the article where, that you mentioned. But basically, the, the Leafs have a really tight cap situation next year, and then it uh, next year, meaning the season after this upcoming one. And then mm-hmm. it clears up after that as Marlo, Patrick Marlowe expires. Um, yeah. so, so really, the, the crunch comes in a one-year form, at least as of right now. So if you're trying to get a defenseman with term, uh, realistically, it's only going to be term extending to that one year because that's all you A, that's all you really need, and B, uh, defensemen with even more term are generally not available. Un, uh, mm-hmm. Unless they're not very good, in which case we're not that acquire, interested in acquiring. Them. Yeah. So, it's could just, we get John Moore? <laughs> yeah. It, so it's like I'm not opposed to to that specifically, and I, I get the idea where it's like you see what Washington has done. The, the goal is to just be be a, as competitive as possible for as many years as possible, and then hope one year sticks. You you don't want to mm-hmm. go all in, but this isn't really going all in. This is just maintaining what we have. And the issue I have with um, with trading Jake Gardner specifically is that even if you think, uh, even if you're you're saying, okay, Travis Dermott can step into that role and he's 
he'll be fine. Well, number one, Travis Dermott has 37 games of NHL experience where he beat up on really, really cushy usage. I'm not 100% mm. sure that he can be as good as Jake Gardner, who is, by the way, like a top 45, top 50 defenseman in the NHL. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it's not. We're not just asking Dermott to become a top four defenseman. We're asking him to become a borderline top pair defenseman next year in order to really not feel the effects of this. And that just seems like a bet that's unlikely to, to come true just because it's really hard to get players as good as Jake Gardner. So you're for sure making the team a little worse in this year. And unless you make him much better in the year following, it doesn't make... The math just doesn't really work out for me. So, yeah, basically just don't trade Dick Gardner. Yeah, that's kind of my bottom line. And I do think that, like, there's an angle to this, which is a lot of people don't like Jake Gardner. A lot of people remember that in Game 7, he had a brutal night. Mm -hmm. He did not play well. He played quite well in the preceding six games of the series, which I don't think anyone is going to remember, unfortunately. He was our most played defenseman. Yeah, and, you, you know, you get all these quotes from Babcock that says, you know, he's better than people think. He's a more effective defenseman. Babcock knows as well as anybody. He, you know, he has, I forget the exact language of this quote, but he said, you know, sometimes Jake goes a little haywire, um, but he's a very good player. And that's the bottom line there. You take the good with the bad and you accept that on net, you get more goals and more shots and more wins when you have Jake Gardner in the lineup than when you don't. Again, if someone makes us a godfather offer, you trade Jake Gardner. Um, I don't think that that's going to happen, though, because Jake Gardner is not the kind of player that tends to be overvalued in the NHL. You you know, um, turning it back around on Darnell Nurse, a big physical defenseman who can play a, a lot of minutes. And I'm not saying Darnell Nurse is bad by any stretch. But that's the kind of guy I could see a team overpaying for. Jake Gardner is a smooth, coursey-heavy defenseman who makes memorable mistakes. And isn't very physical. No. So, I don't think that there's a winning trade to be had there. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to extend him. I think maybe we could, but it probably would mean we'd have to unload Nikita Zaitsev's contract. Or trade um, someone like Zach Hyman or Connor Brown. To, Don't to ever suggest trading Zach on me again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we would have to open up some salary space. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's where we get, I guess, more into actually answering Gus's question. But the one thing I, I want to point out, I saw this um, this funny tweet by, I think it was Emily Jo Michelle, who's uh, a very funny person to follow on Leafs Twitter, who basically mm-hmm. said that anyone suggesting that we trade Gardner this season should have to be the person to tell Mike Babcock that you're trading one of his two defensemen that he trusts the most, that he plays 20 minutes a night uh, for futures. And if you can convince Mike Babcock <laughs> to, do, to do that, then you can trade Jake Gardner. Yeah. <laughs> Just have this vision of Babcock, like, glaring, like, the angriest <laughs> oak tree you've ever seen with, like... <laughs> he just he sets his lip in that, like, iron face. I, I gotta say, I do kind of love Mike Babcock. I disagree with him sometimes, but I think he's pretty great. Yeah. So, but uh, Gus... Yeah, sorry, he, he elaborated... Mm-hmm. Uh, on his point, and he talked about uh, some sort of more general questions about the direction of defensemen in the future. So uh, I'll uh, quote him directly. First-pairing defensemen can be effectively replaced with competent second-pairing defensemen because the game is about outlets, puck management at the top of the offensive zone, and joining the rush. The Leafs have been drafting players with those attributes, though they know too. 
Um, this is an interesting point. I I do agree that the role of defense is uh, is certainly changing. The guy who makes the good first pass out of the zone is more valued than he ever was previously. Uh, I think there's certainly less of an emphasis on being kind of the big, mean Shea Weber type where you go into the corner and you're going to come out with a couple of bruises, whether you come out with the puck or not. Um, there was an emphasis on that. There was an emphasis on sort of the booming clapper from the point to uh, reference Shea Weber again. And the Leafs did, you know, when they drafted defensemen, um, this past draft, they took smaller or at least not very large defensive players, guys who are perceived as smart, guys who are perceived as uh, good puck movers. I don't quite take it as far as Gus does. I don't think that whole Shea Weber skill set, uh, to use a short term, is now useless. I think that that still is better. And I think that there are still going to be an order of defensemen in terms of like how good they are at the things that are valuable, including outlets, puck management at the top of the offensive zone and joining the rush. I think Jake Gardner is good at a lot of those things. Um, he's a very capable skating defenseman. Like he can rush the puck, but he can also uh, make some very good passes. Insofar as he gets himself into trouble, it's often when he sees kind of like the gold star pass open up in front of him and he maybe doesn't realize that like the 10% chance of it blowing up in his face is a really bad one because it'll lead to a breakaway the other way. Um, but he has a lot of those skills. Uh, so I don't know that it's going to be a matter of Jake Gardner, of his type of defenseman kind of going out of style. That would surprise me. Um, I do think that there's a larger point where we're about to be spending an enormous amount of money on our core forwards, and we're going to have to economize on defense, probably. Um, like, it's going to be tough for a while to have a defenseman making more than Morgan Riley is. Or if we do, then the rest of them are going to be guys who are on budget deals and ELCs. So, you know, the we will be looking for competent second-pairing defensemen. We will hope for... The ideal would be, you know, get six second-pairing defensemen, and that's better than having a first one. So I see that. But I don't think that that specifically uh, renders Jake Gardner obsolete. Uh, I think it's just contract crunch is what's going to get him off our team if it happens. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, going back to Gus's original question, like, do you see Dermot or Loigren kind of replacing Jake? If we can't sign him, yeah, it's going to have to be those guys in combination with whatever other kind of scraps we can manage to uh, put on the blue line. Because, yeah, Jake's a very good defenseman. I, I, and I get the argument from a cost-effectiveness point of view that defensemen are uh, not necessarily where you want to invest the hugest amount of your money. And the Leafs basically can't do that anymore because we're guaranteed, as you said, to invest a huge amount of money into forwards. Mm -hmm. uh, so from a cost-benefit perspective, I, I can see why you wouldn't want to, to sign someone like Gardner. But yeah, what, what I disagree with is the fact that second-pairing defensemen will be, I guess so close to first-pairing defensemen? Or, you know, I guess the names kind of obfuscate this, but what you're saying is that, I think what Gus is saying, the point that I think he's trying to make, and, you know, he can reach out to me if this is incorrect, but the point I think he's trying to make is that the gap between good defensemen and average defensemen is going to be shrinking because we're going to see more emphasis on, uh, on skills such as, you know, moving the puck, agility in your own zone, making good first pass, hockey awareness, all those, all those sorts of things. 
and players will kind of clump together in those abilities and since those are the ones that drive play the most and drive effectiveness the most the difference between good and average will be smaller and i don't mm -hmm. necessarily think that that's true because i think there's kind of a natural a, a still going to be a natural order of how good players are at those things and the example i draw is the nba with three-point shooting because now it's very highly emphasized for almost any player that hey if you can shoot you are going to be so much more valuable so everyone's trying to become a good shooter, but it's really, really hard. That's, that's the thing. It's really hard to become a good NBA shooter. It's not easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. And while the general mm -hmm. level has crept up, that, that shift upwards has existed at all ends of the distribution, meaning not only does the average person get better, but the people who are very good get better as well. And there's still a gap between average and great. Mm -hmm. And I think that's likely to persist here because it's not so simple as at least in my opinion, it's not as simple as players just becoming better at moving the puck and making first passes and that you can find a guy on the street who's uh, better than, say, Roman Pollack at doing that stuff. Sure, he'll be better than Roman Pollack at that, but that doesn't mean he's going to be as good as Jake Gardner at that. And there's still kind of a gap between them. And, you know, the, the top players are still going to be improving at that as well as they place more emphasis on developing that part of their skills, the skill set every summer and whatnot. So I think... I agree that defensemen are not where you necessarily want to spend a huge, huge, huge amount of money. At the mm -hmm. same time, I do think we're going to be a worse team if we do lose Jake next offseason. And as of right now, that appears somewhat likely, although my hope is that you can sign him for something in the fives uh, and go from there. Yeah, I, I would say I think if you can get Jake for under six, absolutely do that. I agree with you there. Uh, but it's, it's a fascinating question. I mean, there is definitely a trend, and it's something the Leafs will have to look into. You know, as we said, we're locked into being forward-heavy yeah. for the foreseeable future. Uh, one note about Timothy Liljegren. The opinion I have of the Marlies is, like, you know, like, I, I've seen a few Marlies games last season, so it's mostly me talking to people like Kevin Papetti and uh, Hardev, who writes for our site, and uh, Species, you know, are people who catch more of that. The impression I get is that he had a good AHL season. He had, like, you know, kind of a four-star out of five season. Like, everything to be happy about. I don't know that he's ready to walk in anytime soon. You know, if he takes a big leap this year, obviously anything can happen. But the progression I would see is something like... Um, 1D in the AHL or close to it this year... Because he wasn't that last year, and he wasn't really that close, but like taking on more and more minutes, and then maybe moving into a third pair role the following season, and then hopefully after that progressing, you know, he's still quite young, uh, and, and so in terms of him replacing Jake Gardner, I think it's going to be a couple of years before he's a real factor in terms of replacing Jake Gardner. We're going to require Travis Dermott to do it much sooner if it does come to that. Uh, but that's just my pet opinion. Yeah, and I, anyway, I guess yeah. this is the argument for... If, if you are convinced that the Leafs are going to actually be much worse with Jake Garner, this is, I guess, the valid argument for, for trading him for assets that get you a defenseman with a bit more team control so you can mm -hmm. kind of even out the spread. But it's, it's something that makes sense in theory and is very, very hard to pull off in practice, I think. Yeah, so... Yeah, anyway, that was a, a fascinating question. Um, yeah, very I'll turn it back around. To, 
to uh, some other things. Uh, this is a tough one, from uh, also from Jesmond Jester. He asked us a few. Uh, the morality of tax efficiency in the NHL world at large and whether we care? Woo. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> There's a lot going on. Yeah, here. I mean, I think what they're referring to, my guess is what they're referring to is the fact that certain places have tax advantages, like, like Tampa Bay, part of the reason they can get <clears throat> uh, players to sign somewhat below market deals is, I mean, not just because they're a winner, but because they, their, their take home from, the sal- from their salary is generally larger. And there's a lot of confusion about this topic. I am not an accountant. Um, mm-hmm. We do have some people at the PPP staff who have kind of accounting expertise. And what I've understood from what they discuss is that no one really has an idea of what they're talking about in the, in the popular yeah. media. It, it's, it's, this is a profession that requires you know, quite a bit of study to actually fully understand. So I'm not going to pretend that Fulman or I really know a whole lot about it. Yeah. I, I would like to say I took tax law in school. I don't understand how I passed that exam. I probably didn't deserve to. I could not do anything with it now. So Yeah. So, uh, yeah. We're, we're not awful. the right person, right people to discuss this. It's more complicated than just, oh, Florida is a no tax environment, so their take home is better. Uh, I do think it is a more favorable tax environment for them, but like I've heard things where. Mm-hmm players can be clever about their use of uh, like where they invest and the vehicles by which they do so and that can even it out a lot and yada yada yada. I don't really know and I think if you're the NHL it makes no sense to adjust for these sorts of things because A, tax codes can change and tax laws can change. Are you just going to rewrite the CBA whenever that happens? Um, yeah. B, it would require so much effort to do this in a somewhat equitable way and then even then it's not guaranteed for it to actually be equitable because I guarantee you some clever agent and some clever lawyer are going to find loopholes. So it's just, yeah. the juice isn't worth the squeeze, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, nothing like that, I think, is going to happen. The one, other thing, the one thing I would note is that when you're making $80 million, I'm going to say, um, the marginal benefit of saving a little bit of money on your taxes can add up to, you know, a noteworthy dollar amount. Um, but I would be surprised if that was like the absolute driving consideration for a real top end free agent. Um, John Tavares would be an example here. Now, the Leafs can do other things uh, that can help redress some of their disadvantages in terms of tax efficiency, including they can pay out a deal that is almost entirely signing bonuses. Um, like they can write a gigantic check on July 1st every year and not blink, which is what they did with John Tavares. Um, a lot of teams can't do that. It's been rumored that actually some of the struggles that Ottawa is having uh, with some of their free agents is that they can't make a competitive offer in terms of signing bonuses because they don't have the cash on hand to write a big check on one day. Um, obviously, it's a lot easier for a team who's a little hard up if you spread out that cost over the season. So there are a lot of interplaying factors. And I think if you just isolate tax efficiency, you might have a point. But I don't think it's popularly well understood. And so we're going to try not to contribute to that misunderstanding because we don't know ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's often considered independent of a lot of other factors that, uh, that can really sway a contract decision. The biggest thing is we got John Tavares. So clearly it can't be a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
which Leaf goaltender will get traded or cut? My pet theory is that Garrett Sparks is going to be traded, but anything could happen. Going into training camp, I think that the backup job is kind of open. Uh, there's one little factor that uh, Cassie likes to raise that I think is significant. You want a guy who can back up, who first and foremost is good at playing backup goalie. But you also want a guy who is good at being a backup goalie in general. Curtis McElhinney, say what you will about him, is um, a perfect kind of personality type. Like he's a nice guy. He's workmanlike. He's going to do his job. You can play him 20 games a year. He's not going to worry about trying to steal Freddie Anderson's job. He's kind of ideal for that. And when you're like a stat head, you gnash your teeth at this kind of reasoning. You're like, play the best guy. And I understand that. But if you're not convinced absolutely who the best NHL goaltender is, and for what it's worth, Curtis McElhinney's stats in the NHL last year were really good, even though I don't think he's going to repeat them. Uh, I think that there can be a real factor there in terms of personality type. Garrett Sparks is uh, a likable guy in a lot of ways, an emotional guy, a hard-on-his-sleeve guy who really, really wants to be a starting goalie in the NHL, as he should. Um, you know, he's in his mid-20s. He's got a real shot at trying to make the, the play now, and he's dominated the AHL. But if they're not convinced that he's really good at the backup job, I could see that being something that tells against him a little bit. You don't want a guy getting kind of antsy and restive uh, because he's not going to take the job from Freddie Anderson because nobody is likely to take the job from Freddie Anderson unless he plays in his October form for a whole year. So yeah, my pet theory is McElhinney starts, uh, Sparks is traded, Picard or Pickard, I can't do anyone's names, can I? <laughs> uh, goes down to the Marlies to start. And then uh, longer, uh, I think Pickard is an interesting threat to be the backup next season. Yeah, you know what, I, I think, and this might not be the best way to make a decision because it's inherently a short sample, but I think actually training camp performance is going to make a big difference. Yeah. Because there are valid arguments for all of them. I, I also, like you, I don't believe McElhaney is likely to repeat his NHL performance from last year. Um, I think Sparks really has nothing left to prove at the AHL level. So in that mm -hmm. respect, he's kind of, the worthy backup by by merit and then mm -hmm. you can kind of have McElhaney and Pickard basically play the role for that Sparks and Pickard did last year um and yeah I think potentially one of Pickard or McElhaney could get claimed via waivers anyways yeah it's you know it's not out of the question if you do it at the start of the year yeah you can maybe sneak them know. down either way like whichever of those goalies the Leafs trade they're not likely to get really anything for them I mean the Leafs traded no. Tobias Lindbergh and a sixth-round pick to get Pickard, right? So, yeah, like that's that's their after value. after he cleared waivers, after he cleared waivers. Which, which made sense for us, but still, like yeah. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's very hard to say. I think it's not something I'm terribly fussed about. I think I have a mild preference to for Sparks to be the backup because I do think he has done enough with his play to deserve that shot. Mm -hmm. but those personality factors do matter and and yeah it, it it's not always so simple as we like to make it out to be yeah that that's how i would put it yeah it's, it's worth noting with sparks is that he had a gross nhl sample 
behind a team that was probably not trying and not good. Yeah. Uh, and then he's been fantastic in the AHL. Jumping from the AHL to the NHL is a crapshoot. Some guys do it tremendously. Some guys can't do it at all. At the same time, Sparks so has I, such a good AHL track record that it's like, you kind of, I don't know, I haven't done a detailed an, uh, analysis of this, but mm -hmm. like, you kind of think that, okay, he's probably not going to be as bad as he was before. Right. Almost certainly not. And, and like, you know, I know that it's kind of verboten to suggest defense having that much of an impact on save percentage. The Leafs were so bad <laughs> the year that we were playing Garrett Sparks. Like, if there's any impact that can come from team quality, he will benefit from it. Like, I don't think he's going to be an 893 goalie. Yeah. Um, I think he could be an... A, so, so, yeah. I think I'm confident he could be an NHL backup in terms of play. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's kind of the other stuff that not worries me, but gives me pause, just because there, there's there been whispers of Park, of Sparks being, as you said, the kind of a very a very unique hockey personality, and hockey is not great at integrating those types of personalities into the fold at times. Uh, especially yeah. when you're in a role that is, by its nature, very, very secondary, and ha you kind of have to be low-maintenance if you're a backup. Because yeah. if you're not, I, then, I mean, you know, you're on the chopping block very, very fast. Uh, yeah, so I, I would just take that into account. However, yeah, I would say the biggest takeaway is we'll see after training camp. Yeah. Um, this next one, when will the NHL slash TSN start listing Corsi instead of plus minus? Uh, a man can dream. Um, NHL actually does track, uh, I forget what they even call it. I think they just call it shot like, attempts. Yeah, shot attempts, which is not the end of the world. The problem is that the NHL stats site has been consistently, like, awful. Yeah. So no one uses it for that, and everyone still calls it Corsi. Uh, for TSN to do it, I don't know. Yeah, so, I mean... There have been times... Yeah, sorry, go if ahead. If you're talking about, like, on broadcasts, I think... I mean, in the playoffs, Sportsnet finally started putting a shot counter on mm -hmm. the display which was nice i enjoyed that um i think really we're looking at like 15 years 20 years or so i mean in the nba they still like in graphics or whatever on tnt or uh even on the canadian broadcast tsn sportsnet they never talk about points per possession they always talk about points per game they never talk about true shooting percentage they always talk about field goal percentage uh it's very rare for them to incorporate any sort of advanced stats into the broadcast in the NBA, it happens very, very rarely, and their advanced stats are more accepted, and I feel like the broadcasts are more open to actually trying things there. So, you know, these sorts of stats have been talked about and used in NBA communities for a very, very long time, and even now they haven't made their way into the broadcast circle, so I think we're looking at a very, very long wait for the NHL to even, to regularly use things like Corsi, let alone expected goals. If you want to know my pet theory, it's that the NHL is going to get tracking data and then they're going to get a lot of cool stats and that I think sporadically you're going to see a lot of micro stats that say kind of surprising things like, you know, uh, William Nylander is top five in the NHL at passes to the slot or something like that. Um, you know, I can also see them taking that data and using it for like the most uninteresting things. Like, like Eric Carlson has the has the longest pass distance in the league this year. It's like, okay, cool. Or like, which players travel the most distance? That is going to annoy me so much because that already I exists know. in soccer. And people are like, oh, this player is so inept. He doesn't do a lot of work defensively. He, look how little he moves. When, at least in soccer, being smart with your movement is much more effective than running around like a headless chicken. 
Oh, and yeah. I'm guessing this is going to be true. so much nonsense about yeah. what supposedly proves how hard a guy is playing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to suck. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be the same issue that we've always had with microstats, um, at least the ones that we've seen, or many of the ones we've seen, in mm -hmm. that you need to establish their importance and their repeatability before you really say anything meaningful about them. So, and yeah. I, I, you know, somehow I doubt that the NHL is going to do that. Understandably, it's a very different medium if you're just talking about. If you're talking about it on broadcast TV, you're not going to be like, well, you know, the p-value for this stat is, you know, <laughs> such that we can uh, reject the null hypothesis that it's zero with, you know, high probability. Like, you can't, you can't have those sort of discussions on TV. But no, I, I'm skeptical they're going to use this in a statistically sound way. Yeah, I don't generally like. As a rule, I don't trust the NHL to do anything. <laughs> like, I just. <laughs> Like, I think your default attitude towards the NHL will be, if it's a good thing, they're not going to do it. If it's a bad thing, they're probably going to keep doing it. If it's sort of an ambiguous thing that could go either way, they will do it the wrong way. Like, that's the defining rule of the NHL. And I've been wrong a couple times relying on that as a heuristic. But uh, mostly I've been right. So, like, that's kind of what I would expect. I think, yeah... They'll start incorporating stats that don't have names like Corsi, uh, and they will misuse them. So look forward to that. Yep. Um, <laughs> from uh, Blackout003, the Leafs' power play, how does it change with JVR and Bozak gone? Where does everyone play to be the most effective? This is an interesting question. Yeah. Um, and there's definitely people more qualified to answer it than us. Yeah, but by God, that's never stopped us before. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I don't think you're going to change from the one three one power play setup because one everybody uses that now, like that's universal in the NHL, um, with a couple of exceptions. But like by and large, that's how you set up your power play. The ideal would be you slot Johnson right in. Johnson, oh my God, I'm actually really getting self conscious about how bad I am at pronouncing <laughs> names now that I think about it. Johnson uh, would ideally slot in, in a similar to the JVR role. He's way smaller than JVR. But he's got some agility and some offensive instinct, and he can kind of dart around. Um, he's been proud in the past, and rightly so, of his capacity to score ugly goals. He's not easily intimidated. So he can live in the dirty areas, for lack of a, letter, lack of a better phrase. And I would hope he could do a lot uh, of that. Um, so... At the beginning, at least, I think you're going to see them try to do the same thing stylistically with slightly different personnel. Um, with John Tavares added, you can do all sorts of things. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about, like, where do you put him to be the most effective? Like, do you have him be, usually with the 1-3-1 and certainly with the Leafs, you get someone kind of distributing off the side wall who kind of runs all power play, and then he can sort of go, slide back the blue line, or he can... Uh, make passes from there. John Tavares is obviously really capable of doing that, but he's really capable of doing anything. So he's kind of the wild card. Like if you want to restructure your power play, he's a great uh, addition. So I think we'll suffer less than we would otherwise have certainly from losing JVR. But I think JVR was like a really, really good power play presence, notwithstanding what Steve Birch was lecturing me on on Twitter the other day. <laughs> um I think that, you know, you, know, you will notice he's, he's different. At the start, changes are going to be just slotting one guy in and hoping that he can kind of do the job. As time goes, you might see 
a greater effort to really exploit John Devaros' skill set. That would be my amateur's guess. Yeah, so my my thinking here is that a large part of the first unit is going to stay the same. I still think you keep Marner on the right half wall, you keep Riley at the point, and you probably keep Kadri in the middle. I think Kadri's mm-hmm. really, really good there. Um, and I think Tavares would be too. They're both left-handed shots, I believe. Um, so you could you could put Tavares there and he would be fine, but I think Kadri is better there than he would be in another spot. So I, I would keep Kadri there. I would put Tavares kind of where Bozak was last year. And the advantage here is that, on popular opinion, um, John Tavares is much better than Tyler Bozak. Whoa, dog. Yeah. Slow down. So you can kind of have dual creators. The entire power play doesn't have to run through Marner. You now have a lot of options. You can make that cross-ice pass and then let Tavares set things up, uh, change the angle, things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. In JVR's role, yeah, you could have you could have Janssen there. I, I don't mind that. Maybe maybe Marlowe. And then I would still build the second round, uh, the second unit around Matthews and um, Nylander. I guess there, there's still people who there's people who would want Matthews to be placed in that uh, top role uh, on the power play, where maybe he takes JBR's spot as the net front presence. He, he certainly has the skills to do it. He can mm-hmm. pop out sometimes and use his shot. Um, I that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, I wouldn't begrudge that, but I think. If you can save Austin Matthews minutes for even strength and still have an awesome power play, it's more valuable. Uh, yeah. Like it, it's kind of it's it's like uh, in in Pokemon where you have all these full restores and you don't want to use them until you really need them, right? <laughs> um, so if you can if you can have an elite power play like an elite first unit power play without Austin Matthews, I think you do that, and then he'll still be there on the second second unit. He'll still get a lot of. Uh, get some time there uh, and I think one thing that's important to remember and something that I fall into sometimes when I'm talking about like my favorite player or whatever is that the Leafs are not in the business of maximizing any individual player's performance they're in the interest of winning games mm-hmm. so yes Austin Matthews stats will suffer a little bit if he's not on the first power play unit because he'll get less power play time than other superstars around the league uh, and you know that's not meaningless because you do have to manage that relationship and guys like Matthews want to be the guy in every situation and reportedly, that's what, yeah. if there was any sort of discontent with, with Matthews last year, it was that he wasn't getting used as much as he felt he should. Uh, and that comes almost entirely on the power play, because his even strength minutes are among the top in the league. So you yeah. have to be careful about that. At the same time, if you can sell Matthews on that and say, you know what, we are, we know you'd kill it on the power play, but we're going to keep you on the second unit, make sure you kill it at even strength, and also maybe sell it the way the NBA teams do and say, look, we're going to make the playoffs this year. We need you at 110% in the postseason, mm-hmm. right? Any minute we save is adding minutes to your career. So like, I, I think there's an argument for that. So that's what I would do, and then I'd build the second unit around Nylander, uh, Matthews, that cross-ice combination, uh, put yeah. Marlowe at, at the net front. Um, who would you put in the middle? That I, that's that, the, yeah, that's the that's question. Is you can kind of audition a lot of guys for the sort of bumper role. If I see Connor Brown there um, one more time, <laughs> oh, he was really bad at that role, man. He was really, really bad. Um, you know what? Yeah. I, th- you could put. Um, and this isn't necessarily the role for Tyler Ennis, but Tyler Ennis can play a role on a second unit power play. Mm-hmm. Josh Lebo can play a role there. Um, if you want to play Kapanen somewhere, maybe you could do that. So. I think that's the general structure, how I, I would set it up. I need to do more thinking and flesh it out more deeply uh, than in the five minutes we're discussing this on the podcast, but yeah. 
that's my general framework of thinking. Have the first unit be kind of the same, but add Taveras as a secondary playmaker there, uh, and someone who has kind of freedom to roam around, and then keep uh, the second unit based on the matthews Nienander partnership. Yeah, I, I think fundamentally that's the way to do it. I would, the, other, the one thing I would consider is, in terms of the one three one, you can put uh, Austin Matthews in the middle. Yeah. And he's maybe a little, uh, you know, he's, he's certainly bigger than, say, Janssen or Tyler Ennis. Uh, if you want a guy who's going to be running into a bit more physical contact, whereas the guy on the sideboards, uh, if he's agile, can kind of stay away. Uh, it's one of the things that Marner is so good at. That said, uh, it's kind of funny how things work out. There's a lot of waiting and seeing. I do think uh, the point is entirely valid about how the Leafs do not exist to maximize Austin Matthews' stats. And I got to say, I found a lot of the criticism of Mike Babcock for not playing Matthews' first unit power play bizarre. Like, did you notice how the first unit on the power play was doing? It would have been ridiculous for him to break that up. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that uh, that's about right. This is an interesting one um, from at MLG Philly. Um, does not having a center on the PK affect the PK a lot because of losing the faceoffs more? Um, so the Leafs last year would rely on uh, Leo Komarov, Zach Hyman, Connor Brown as a lot of their primary penalty killing forwards. Uh, Leo Komarov actually had a decent faceoff percentage. He was about 53%. Uh, Hyman and Brown were bad uh, at taking faceoffs. There's no getting around it. They were 43 and 39 uh, because they're naturally wingers. And it's an interesting question. Normally, face-offs are kind of overrated. They're not nearly as important as they're made out to be for the simple reason that the best regular face-off guy in the NHL usually wins 60% of the time, and the worst guys uh, usually put up about 40 so if there were a guy who was winning 90% of his face-offs, that guy would be a monster and his face-offs would be very, very important. But when it's the difference between a 50-50 split and a 60-40 split, um, that's not huge. Yeah, and especially uh, when you consider those are the extreme ends, like Ryan O'Reilly and Patrice Bergeron. They do provide value with face-offs yeah. because they take so many of them and they win them at a high clip. But most guys are in the even smaller than the 60-40 range. They're in like a 45-55 to 55 range. And it's, it's just... Yeah. It's just such a marginal thing. But yeah, I think this is where you're going with this. On the penalty kill, losing a face-off, it's shown, completely destroys a penalty kill shift because you basically let them... If you lose the face-off in the defensive zone, the other team essentially has control and can set up as they wish. And then that's when yeah. it gets really um, troubling as a defending team. So winning face-offs on the penalty kill is actually very, very important. And I think mm -hmm. the point that um, this fellow raises... I, sorry, I forgot their name already. But... It's a, that's a very good point, actually, yeah. um, that you should kind of prioritize penalty kills to some, or sorry, penalty killing face-off to, uh, to some degree. Now, I remember um, this was kind of the argument for Ben Smith, right? Babcock wanted a right-handed yeah. face-off guy on the PK. And I think at that point you're getting a little narrow because Ben Smith was also like a bad even-strength player. And you really never want to sacrifice even-strength play for marginal gains on the penalty kill. But if mm -hmm. you have good players throughout your lineup, with the Le which the Leafs do, yeah, I think it's worth playing a good face-off guy on the penalty kill. John Zavaris has played penalty kill with the Islanders. I, I will be interested 
If uh, Mike Babcock uses him in that regard with the Leafs, it wouldn't be what he's done before. But, you know, Mike Babcock can surprise me. Um, Nassim Kadri also did not kill that many penalties, despite being used as kind of the matchup center. And you wonder if he was being preserved for, like, the hard work at even strength. Um, I would like uh, a better face-off guy. And again, Tavares can do that. But the thing is, is that... Um, all of our best centers uh, shoot left. And one, I don't know if I want to play Matthews on the penalty kill anyway for the reasons that we talked about. And then, you know, if the other guy who's taking right-handed face-offs, because the least like to trade off depending on side, is Zach Hyman. Well, Zach Hyman hasn't always been the best face-off man, much as I love him. Yeah. And, you know, there, so, there are arguments for playing your stars on the penalty kill. Like, you look at what Bergeron and Marchand do mm-hmm. in Boston. Um, I'm actually kind of... I'm I'm not opposed to that idea at all. The only issue, I guess, would be injury. Um, but I don't know if it's necessarily true that you face more injuries playing on the PK than playing at five on five. The real reason, just to make sure this is clear, the real reason I wouldn't want to play, or I'm not opposed to keeping Matthews on the second line power play, is that if you you it's because the Leafs can construct a really really good first line power play without him, right? Yeah. In the case of the penalty kill, if Matthews ends up being a ridiculously good penalty killer and like one of the least best and he probably would to be honest because he's austin matthews and he's good at everything um <laughs> he's dope then i think they should go for it actually uh yeah i mean it's something to think about and as we move forward you know maybe you look at there was a little flash of mitch marner on the penalty kill at times not very much yeah but um he would certainly be interesting and it's fun to have a shorthanded threat uh, Kapanen and Janssen are both capable of doing yeah. that. Marner would obviously be another another one. Zach Hyman has been one in the past. I wonder if maybe I like shorthanded threats a little too much out of disproportion to their real value, but it's so much fun to score shorthanded goals. It's so backbreaking um, when you give one up, too. I know. I, I, I don't want to get too carried away, and I'm sure, I don't know if anyone has studied this, but like, it sure feels like uh, scoring a, a shorthanded goal really deals an emotional blow. Uh, and I can remember, you know, anecdotal times where this has sadly happened to the Leafs. Um, remember we gave up that... So I don't know if that's... Born... Sorry. Remember we gave up that five-on-three goal against uh, to New Jersey in, like, the fourth game of the season or something like that? Oh, my God. Oh, that was excruciating. Yeah. And th- there was one... Um, there was one game against Carolina where they seemed entirely ready for our drop pass that is our power play entry to get through the neutral zone. Yeah. And... So they just stopped us at the line time and time and time again. And then Elias Lindholm uh, stripped the puck and went away for a shorty. And immediately it was just like the air went out of the balloon. We were like, we're not going to win this game. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't know. Maybe that's just a feeling. This is all very confirmation biasy. Because, I mean, let's not forget um, Kasperi Kaplan scored a ridiculous shorthanded goal in game seven. Right. That seemed like such a backbreaker to give the Leafs a 4-3 lead. And then, weirdly, they canceled the third period for some reason. But Yeah, I don't know. It's strange. But, you know, you got to respect the decision. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, a long way around to say, I think, yeah, it does matter. I don't think that you should reconstruct your whole lineup trying to fix it. Um, I don't, you, you know, I'd like to have a good face-off guy on the penalty kill. I would like to have a good penalty guy, penalty killer on the penalty kill more. Um, but it's something to keep an eye on as we go forward. And it may be relevant in terms of 
maybe some surprising usages that'll happen on the PK. But I, I still think you're going to see a lot of Zach Hyman. You're going to see a lot of Kasperi Kapanen. Yeah. Um, so we got, uh, we have uh, a listener named at Maple underscore Hyperion who gave us a, uh, a very fun endorsement a week or two ago, which said basically, you know, they're tolerable. That's what uh, we aim so he for. Has That's what questions. we aim for. Listen, we want to be something that people can sort of stand. So there were a lot of questions. Um, I'm going to go through these a lot of, a little bit more quickly just because there are so many. And there's one more at the end that we want to get to and answer in detail. So this one is, uh, who's going to be captain? I think that's an open question. I think leadership is mostly determined by the personalities in the room, and it kind of goes how it goes. I don't think anyone is captain this year. I think a year from now, I could see it being John Tavares. That would not surprise me in the least. Or it could be Austin Matthews. Yeah, I feel like they're going to give it to to Matthews. But, I mean, I don't know. I've I've never cared that much about captaincy although i will i mean i I say oh i never cared that much about captaincy i i I think morgan riley should be the captain i want captain morgan me too yeah first of all you can't beat that name uh second of all i i think riley is good at kind of the media angle of this uh which is really in toronto being the captain of the toronto maple leafs is as much as anything a pr position and if your best player is good at handling that that's terrific that was one of the great things about matt sundin was that he was pretty unflappable a lot of the time in interviews despite being asked questions by rosie demano um i don't get the impression that matthews is quite as at ease maybe that'll come with age he's still quite young but riley can do it so i, I would be inclined to make riley the captain i don't think that's how it's gonna happen yeah. but whatever uh a new goal song i was asked this a while back uh look up toe cutter Thumbbuster by the ocs Great rock song. I can't get too wild because this is a hockey arena and ultimately they all have to be rock songs, but it's a good one. Yeah, I, I have nothing to add here. All, all of my music tastes are like hipster bullshit, so. Uh, well, <laughs> hipster bullshit makes the world go around. It, 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 it's uh, it's invariably like a band that's name is just like three nouns after one another, like Raccoon Sex Dungeon or something. <laughs> I'm excited for their second album. I thought that they had a lot of potential. Yeah um rank the canadian teams so in some order toronto and winnipeg are neck and neck for first i think that that is clear Mm -hmm. i might give the slight edge to winnipeg now i don't know winnipeg has a better defense uh we have a better forward group but i think their defense is better than our defense by more than our forward group is better than their forward agreed so very slight edge after that uh it's kind of a jumble i will say Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Montreal, Vancouver, and then, like, I think you really have to insert a very long string of blank slots here, just to make the point. Yeah. So even though that there are seven Canadian teams, it would be unjust to rank Ottawa seventh, because they're much, much worse than that. So, you know, like, ranked about 2,000th, you probably have the Ottawa Senators. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. I might move Edmonton up, again, just because they have Connor McDavid. <laughs> mm-hmm. Guess you're one way. Like it, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how much, how much having one player can just make you change your opinion of a team. Because without Connor McDavid, that team is not that good. It's not good at all. But No, without Connor McDavid, that team is a consistent lottery team. But they team. have Connor McDavid. I firmly believe so. that. Yeah, so, you know... That's that. Uh, the third D pairing, I think, 
that's gonna kind of develop as things go on. Totally a training um, camp battle. Yeah, like that's really wide open. The Leafs have a lot of defensemen uh, who are like either six seven D in the NHL or like very good for the AHL. Uh, obviously, in my heart, Martin Marincin comes out of nowhere to win the job, but I I think he can play on the right side. He s- can PK. Come on. <laughs> he can do whatever you need him to. He's so We should good. get a cut of his next contract, I swear. <laughs> I know. We've just been waving that flag. That's really been the most consistent theme is Martin Marincin is good and uh, Rasmus Ristolainen is bad. Yeah, it's like, Those are the two pillars on which our podcast is built. It's like us two and Ian Tullock on Martin Marincin Island. <laughs> no one is left. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I think... that. To start, we're going to start with probably the similar top four as last year. You'll have Riley Hainsey, you'll have Gardner Zaitsev, and then you'll have Dermot, and I'm going to say probably Connor Carrick, but easily Connor Carrick could lose that job. Connor Carrick has had a way of losing that job over and over under Mike Papkoff. Yeah, so, so Justin uh, Hall could sneak in there. Marinson could sneak in there. It, it also depends if, um, if Dermot moves up in the lineup as well which is a possibility if they decide, okay, you know what, Dermot's too good mm-hmm. to only play third pair minutes. Or or if yeah, they, you know, I, I don't anticipate this happens, but if they do trade Jake Garner, then obviously everything gets thrown into a flux. Yeah, and th- then anything could happen. But to start, yeah, I would expect Dermot and Carrick, and then you'll have uh, Marinch and, and maybe Justin Hall kind of nipping at the heels. Uh, is Bab safe? He is, but what do you think he should do different? So, yes, obviously Babcock is entirely safe. Um, I, I think he would have to have two consecutive really disappointing seasons mm-hmm. before the Leafs would consider dismissing him. Um, what do I think you should do different? I've thought that the reliance on the stretch pass, I've talked about this before, was kind of a lot. I thought the Leafs seemed dependent on that. Uh, and so I would like to see that cut down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it's also tough because it's not like Babcock publishes a manifesto of what exactly he's telling the players to do. and So it's unclear mm-hmm. how much of it is his direction, how much of it is the players kind of uh, being unable to execute. But yeah, yeah, I think that's probably the the biggest gripe I have with them last year was just that the Leafs were a worse shot share team than they were in years past. And despite a roster that seems much stronger than prior years. So it's kind of, it's kind of cliche to blame that on the coach, but it does kind of fall on him to some degree. So basically just fixing that. That's very, very broad. That's not actionable at all. Yeah. And kind of, I guess that's my system's naivety at, at work. But that's really the only major issue I had with him. He, he figured out the optimal lineup by the end of the regular season. It was annoying to watch Leo Komarov play a lot more than he should. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, I'm kind of almost going to the NBA fan school of thought, which is like the regular season doesn't really matter that much. Just get to just no, get to the playoffs. We were, make sure we were locked in there. by January. Yeah, just get to know? the playoffs. Make sure you're peaking there. Make sure everyone's healthy there. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know, like, do your best to get home a home ice. But yeah, I'm I'm not you know fussed if we don't have an optimal lineup for games one through eighty two, as long as we have an optimal lineup for game one of the playoffs. Yeah, I I think that's clear. Uh, we did already address who's backing up Freddie, so we'll skip that. Uh, and Nylander's contract. I think we've talked about this a bit. Yeah. My guess is between 6.5 and 7 million per year for a 6-year deal. I would be quite happy yeah, with that. Yeah, it's like a, a little premium on what um on what Dylan Larkin just got, I suppose. Uh 
I don't want to pay him any more than seven million, not because I don't think he'd live up to it. I do, but because I think mm-hmm. with an RFA, you as as bad as it sounds and as pro labor as I usually am, uh, you can you can squeeze mm-hmm. them a little bit. And I would, if yeah. you can convince me to take even five hundred thousand per year less, even five hundred thousand per year less, that's a ridiculous amount of money. But um, if you can sell him on or force him <laughs> into taking a, a little bit of a, le- a smaller salary, that can make a big difference down the road. You know, we see how these little 500Ks and 1 million uh, overpayments or wasted monies kind of add up. So, yeah, you know, this is a big decision for the Leafs in terms of what they do here. I, would, I want them to kind of make sure they're getting as low a price as possible for as long as possible um, and, and go from there. Yeah, I'll say this. And the... Now that we're like 70 minutes in, I'm going to sell out all my lefty cred for this podcast. But I'm very pro-labor. I think the owners are generally vampires. I root for the players to come out with a better deal on every CBA than they usually do. It's like being a Leafs fan. But, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't end up working well most of the time. It just never works out. But I will note, like, I have to admit, I'm not, like, crying myself to sleep at the prospect that William Nylander will get six and a half million instead of seven. Like, I just, I don't think that that's quite the same as the minimum wage being between 10 and 15 for someone who's working that job. Um, Anyway, now that, uh, like, (laughs) that's my most, like, right-wing opinion that I possessed, and even then I'm, like, scared because everyone that follows me on Twitter is probably a communist. But, um... Yeah, hockey Twitter overlaps with, like, socialist Twitter quite a bit. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, well, if you're into hockey stats, I guess you're into uh, democratic socialism and so be exactly. it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, we had one other question that kind of opens up into a whole other thing. It's where Matthews actually lands in the league's best centers. That was from Jordan Watts on Twitter. Uh, the NHL did its top 20 centers, and I'm going to be real with you. A lot of people made fun of them for it. I thought their list was pretty much fine. It was not bad. I thought they, yeah, like I thought that, you know, they got a hard time over it, but it's like they made a lot of sense. They overrated William Carlson, I think, based on his hot season, but they had him 20th, or not 20th. Like 17th Did they even rank? No, they had him 17th. Um, So, like, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with that, but a lot of the rest of it made sense. They had Austin Matthews 4th. Which I think is, I'm going to say, premature. Uh, I think he'll get there. I don't think he's quite there yet. Um, but the two of us tried to do our own list because it's not fair for us to trash talk anyone else or criticize if we're not willing to kind of put our money with our mouths Yeah, on. and it's, it's actually very um, hard to make this list. I mean, you, it's you, so hard. you go down the names and it, it's easy to be like, oh, Mark Shifley isn't the fifth best center in the league. It's like, okay, well, how low do you drop him? Is he better than Tyler Sagan? Is he better than Stephen Stamkos? Like, we're... A lot of these players are very, very close in ability to one another, and you can mm-hmm. make a really strong argument for almost any order after the top four or five, let's say. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's surprisingly difficult, and I think, you know, if, if you do hate this list, try and make one of your own and see how long it takes for you to be happy with it, because it, it took quite a few iterations for me to be happy with with my list. So, I, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll discuss it fairly quickly. Uh, hopefully we don't go too much over our usual 90-minute allotment. We're like... 75 minutes in right now so yeah well okay so we agreed on the top four which was reassuring yeah yeah because um, god knows we don't agree enough on this podcast i know if there's one thing we need you know what 
we have too much controversy. I'd like <laughs> us to be a little bit more insane. Yeah. Uh, so obviously Connor McDavid is number one. Yeah. I the the only argument that he's not is kind of a count the rings argument for Sidney Crosby. Someone noticed this on Twitter, and I just want to point it out because it's kind of funny. Sidney Crosby was like pretty clearly the best player on the planet for like eight years, and every time people were like, "But you know, maybe it's Jonathan Tays. You know, maybe it's someone else." And now that like he's probably finally not quite the best player anymore, people are like, "It's obviously Crosby." <laughs> you know, like it's such a lagging indicator. But uh, I, McDavid, and then Crosby because he's still outstanding. Then Evgeny Malkin, who I don't think ever quite gets the credit he deserves, um, but is excellent. And then Patrice Bergeron, who is the best two-way center in the world. Um, I think that those are kind of intuitive. And then we just kind of went all over the place after that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That Things changed um, a lot after that. So, I at number five, at number five, I had Nathan McKinnon. Yeah, I had Nathan McKinnon at number 12. So Yeah, see, so immediately that's a, a huge divergence. And I think what this sort of comes down to is how much do you believe last year is the real Nathan McKinnon? How much do you believe it was just um, a one-year blip and that he'll revert to something in between his previous years and what he was last year? Because last year he was, like, a top-five player in the world. Yeah. Um, but the three years before that, he was, like, a okay first-liner. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I... I'm kind of more of a skeptic. I probably erred a little bit on the side of conservatism uh, on these ones. Like, I tried not to overreact uh, to changes. He could make me look silly, but I just don't quite think he's as good as he looked. He had a bit of a shooting percentage spike. He had Rantanen having the year of his life. Now, if Rantanen is, is actually this good and he gets to keep playing with McKinnon, then, well, I give up and he'll zoom up the list. But I'm not quite... Yeah, no, I, yeah. Rantanen is really, really awesome. He was, like... When every Toronto fan was like, oh, William Meenan is, is the best player in the AHL. The actual best player in the AHL was Miko Rantanen. Yeah, <laughs> and didn't get nearly as much credit for it. But, like, almost everyone I had ahead of McKinnon uh, has a much longer track record of being elite. So mm -hmm. I, I want to see another year. He had as good a year as you can hope for. So credit where it's due. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, I, I mean, the you mentioned the shooting percentage thing, but, like, that, that was kind of the kind of inexplicable thing about McKinnon in years prior is that he just couldn't finish. Mm -hmm. And it it's really rare, especially for a guy who was taken number one overall, who, like, you just watch him and visually he has all the skill in the world. He yeah. can just do ridiculous things with the puck. And you're like, why can't this guy score? Yeah, he might have um, just been, you know, it is possible that through a combination of not enough help or whatever, he was just in a shooting trial. That's like... Yeah, and then this is the real him. And if it is, then he's going to pretty quickly become number three or number even number two on the list is Crosby ages yeah I think that that's pretty realistic so um do you want to you just go down your list and I'll chip in with my sure. many good thoughts <laughs> okay so from five through nine I kind of grouped that as a tier mm -hmm. uh so I had McKinnon at five then Austin Matthews at six John Tavares at seven Anse Kopitar at eight and Mark Shifley at nine yeah uh so I had Matthews at 11 which is kind of <laughs> sacrilegious this is me trying not to be a homer uh yeah no i i actually think that's justifiable because like and this is where i'm somewhat inconsistent with my rankings because you know patrice bergeron the argument for him having him at four is that okay his on ice impacts are just wild mm -hmm. right uh, and even if his individual stats are not the greatest he clearly does a lot of things that aren't just captured in goals assists and points 
that make it so that his team is incredibly good when he's on the ice. And that's ultimately what's important. Now, Austin Matthews is the inverse of that, at least relative to these other top players. Yes, he makes the team much better when he's on the ice, but um, it's not as um, pronounced as it is with, with other players like Bergeron, like Mark Scheifele, like Anzai Kopitar, like John Tavares, mm-hmm. um, where those guys take any sort of team and make them immediately far, far better in terms of shots and goals. Matthews did that in terms of goals last year, but that was partially shooting percentage driven. Um, and he hasn't had that same sort of consistent success. But what he does have is ridiculous individual stats. He is mm-hmm. uh, He was the league leader in primary point rate last year, above Connor McDavid, above Nathan McKinnon, above everyone else in the league. Austin Matthews had the most primary point, or sorry, the best primary point rate at even strength. He is ridiculous offensively. He's just a vortex of shots from the slot. And I mean, I, I, I talked about this in a piece, but he is so unique as a goal scorer because he's pretty much the only goal scorer who provides uh, a huge amount of shot volume. All those shots are a very large proportion of those shots from excellent areas on the ice. And then also an elite shot in that he outperforms his expected shooting percentage after you account for shot location. And that makes him the best even strength goal scorer in the league without a doubt. Yeah. I... So, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> my case for having Matthews up here. His individual stats are too good to deny. I expect that in a year or so, Matthews will easily be top five on my list, if not higher. And yeah. if you're going to be the best at one particular thing, goal scoring is the thing. That you yeah, should be the best absolutely. at. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I mentioned his that he didn't have incredible on ice shot impacts. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't matter as much if you're if all of your shots are really really good shots from great locations and have a better than average chance of beating the goalie, because you know a, a jump in shooting percentage can carry you a lot farther than a small jump in uh, shot share. Mm-hmm. And Matthews does have the profile of a guy who can sustainably hold high shooting percentages, both for him and his line mates. Yeah, I mean, that's the uh, the trick for another guy on this list. But Steven Stamkos has sustained yeah. a 16% shooting percentage year in, year out, pretty well, excepting last year. But he did it yeah. for so long that I think you can trust that it's a real skill with him. And once you can do that, you know, you can say, oh, well, he saws off at 50% in shots. And I think people get a bit, if you're kind of trained in, like, hockey nerdery, you kind of view Corsi and shoot and shots as like the be all and the end all and shooting percentage as mostly a fluke. And as a rule of thumb, that's pretty good, but there are extraordinary players who just, you know, once you kind of can break free of that and you can be really sure that this guy is such an above average shooter, then he, he really, you really have to measure him on a different plane. And I think that you're right that that's increasingly true of Matthews. And I think it's definitely true of Steven Stamkos. So, yeah, We'll get to Stamkos in a little bit, but yeah, he, he's someone who I think actually could have ranked higher on my list. It's just mm-hmm. because of that shooting percentage trough uh, that he went through last year, his numbers are not as impressive as they might otherwise appear. And also with Stamkos, I mean, he's had injuries, but his injuries were leg injuries. It's not like he had a wrist injury and no. you would expect him to not shoot as well. Like it, His shot should seemingly still be there. But anyways, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, yeah, seven was John Tavares. The big thing for me here is that Tavares takes, like, literal bums and turns them into 40-goal scorers, with my apologies to Anders Lee, who, if he listens to this podcast, he must hate us. because Yeah, every podcast, we're like, man, Anders Lee is pretend. Anders Lee doesn't really exist. Yeah, and <laughs> meanwhile, he's, like, a 40-goal scorer. Yeah. Um, but, like, it's just, 
consistently John Tavares has elevated really, really crappy line mates into very, very good. And then all those line mates like suck when he's not there. Yeah. I, so, I, I mention this every podcast because it makes me laugh, but like Matt Molson is making $5 million in the AHL for, for Buffalo still. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. ridiculous. So uh, that's a big part of why I think he's there. Like he gets a big boost from not having great line mates and still putting up the shot and goal numbers that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, eight, I have Anse Kopitar. Yeah, me Everyone too, Everyone knows what the deal is with this one. Oh, sweet. We finally agree again. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a relief. I was, there was like a lot of conflict going on with our slightly different list. Yeah, I mean, Anze Kopitar is a fantastic player. He's he's one of those yeah. guys who's a great two-way player. He can produce. He can do everything. He's getting old, like all of Los Angeles. I think that his best days are increasingly behind him, and I think L.A. is going to kind of circle the drain for many years in a vaguely sad <laughs> way, if you care about Los Angeles, which I don't. But... He's a great player, you know, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. So, yeah. I, I think that that's pretty all clear. He's he's Jonathan Taves, but Slovenian, so no one so like he doesn't get the plaudits of, yeah. of Taves, but like they're they're they've been similar players over the course of their career. He's another one uh, and I guess I should actually mention our criteria here, which I, I realize we should have done earlier, but the criteria we were judging people on is if we were to build a team to win a playoff series tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, Last season is obviously important, but we're not assuming they're going to play as well as last season. And Kopitar is a guy who had a ridiculous year last year, and I don't think he would sustain the same level of individual offense this year, but he's still very, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, nine, I have Mark Scheifele. Yeah, Mark Scheifele. And I think people sleep on him because he's from Winnipeg, and yeah. you know, we've made our fun of Winnipeg, but like, he is so good if you watch him. Honestly, every time we played them, uh, where everyone would talk about Patrick Laine and how good Patrick Laine was. And Patrick Laine is great, don't get me wrong. But the guy who dazzled me every time we played them was Mark Shifley. Just yeah. such a good player. Um, smart plays all up and down the ice. So. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that was, I guess, my next tier. And then from 10 through 20, actually, I kind of, you can almost lump these guys together. Yeah. Uh, because you could almost put this in any order. Uh, so I'll just go through mine, and then you'll, you'll chime in again? Yeah. Okay, 10, I have uh, Matthew Barzal. Yeah, I, I had him 20, but, like, that's mostly yeah. just me being wait and see. It, it's the same. It's kind of the same thing with McKinnon, mm-hmm. as, as it was with McKinnon, because, like, if you're evaluating based on last year, Barzal should be in the top 10, mm-hmm. and even higher than I have him, because his last year was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. He's it's one of these... just a question... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, uh, have you noticed that it's always you're always the one who like defers to me, and I'm I'm always the one who just expects you to do so. But I'm also always the one who tries to start talking over you, so it's sort of like me trying to compensate <laughs> for my own rudeness. Um, but yeah, no, um, yeah, he's his stats last year are ridiculous. It's just a question of whether he can do it again um, and do it without having someone like Tavares to help insulate him to some degree from uh, all the tough matchups. Because now he's going to be, you know, by far the primary focus of every team when they face the Islanders. Yeah. and I Because think... no one cares about Anders Lee. <laughs> and again, if there's one thing you should take away from this podcast, it's Anders Lee is actually bad. But no, uh... Actually, he, he could... Sorry, now I'm talking over you here. Yeah, go um, for it. Uh, Lee could put up 40 goals again if he has Barzal uh, playing with him. Yeah, you never know. And then everyone will be like, see, it wasn't just Tavares. Every Isles fan, and I think most Isles fans know that they're not going to be very good. Uh, but they're all praying for Barzil to outscore Tavares this year. And he might. Yeah. Because they don't no, he, have he, anyone else really to give good. the ice time to. 
<laughs> yeah, he's really, really, really good. Um, so at 11 and 12, I have two players who I kind of tethered together. Like they, throughout my iterations of the assist, they were always like next to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, Sean Couturier at 11 and Alexander Barkov at 12. Mm-hmm. And they kind of fit the same mold of just incredibly impressive uh, two-way centers who also put up great offense. And for Couturier, that offense really only showed up this year, at least at an elite level. He kind of scored at good top six rates before, but last year he scored just at an insane, insane rate, uh, partially fueled by playing with Claude Giroux during one of Giroux's best seasons ever, maybe his best season ever. Mm -hmm. Um, But with Couturier specifically, his on-ice stats are, they might be the best in the league in terms of his on-ice shot and goal impact, and it's been that way over the course of his career. His um, teammate relative uh, Corsi percentage over the past five years is plus 6% on a good team. That's actually, that's pretty much the same as Patrice Bergeron. Yeah. And up until this season, he did not have the type of line mates that Bergeron had. Uh, his expected goals uh, percentage relative to his teammates was like plus 8% over the past three years. It's just absolutely ridiculous numbers. And... I mean, again, this is where my list might be a little uh, inconsistent because I, I try to prioritize that. And if you prioritize that, you should actually, you could put him above Mark Streifer. You could put him above John Tavares. You could put him above Austin Matthews even because his honest impacts are that good. Yeah. Um, but the individual offense isn't quite there. And I think I still kind of rely on that to some degree. And, you know, we can debate about the relative merits of that, I suppose, but... He is incredible at that. And then pretty much the same is true with Barkov. His individual stats are generally higher uh, than Couturier's, last year notwithstanding. His on-ice impacts are slightly worse, but they're still very good. Yeah, I I mean, I think that that's kind of the size of it. These are guys who are doing really tough work with good line mates still, uh, but it's very impressive. I had Barkov a little higher. Uh, I can't say that I didn't put Couture and Couturier back-to-back at 14 and 15 on my list because they have basically the same name. That was like 90% of the reason. Um, yeah. But, well, but I think that's a valid reason. But like, they're both like extremely impressive two way players. And I think that if Patrice Bergeron ever succumbs to age and his like ongoing six injuries that he always seems to have and just totally ignores, uh, I, you know, I, the, the, the Selkie candidates of the future are going to be Barkov and Gaturier. Yep. Uh, yeah, so keep on trucking, so oh, I don't sure. have to uh, read my so, own list. <laughs> uh, 13, I have Stamkos. We kind of touched on him before. Mm-hmm. He's kind of underrated in a way because he is one of those few guys who can sustain incredibly high shooting percentages year after year, both for his himself and for his, his teammates, largely fueled because he has a very high personal rate. I dogged him a little bit because he's not even the best player on his own line, which is, you know, I mean, <laughs> There's, there's like maybe three or four players who would be the best player playing next to Nikita Kucherov, right? So, yeah. Um, that's understandable, but he has, he gets a very high quality of teammate boost. Uh, 14, I have Ryan Getzlaff, who is old, but somehow still good. He is valiantly trucking through having Randy Carlisle as a coach, <laughs> which he deserves plaudits for. Uh, 15, I have Tyler Sagan. Yeah. Uh, again, so, I mean, th- these are like kind of boring first-time centers in that they're the guys who we've seen there for a while. And I think Sagan's probably underrated on, yeah. on my list. I could probably put him up a little bit more. But again, he, he plays with incredible line mates. Um, he, he played a lot with Ben and Radulov last year. And his again, his individual scoring is great. His honest impacts are not as great. Uh, yeah. And unlike Austin Matthews, his 
scoring rates are not best in the league, so I, I didn't give him as much credit for that. Uh, do you want to chime in on any of those three, or should I just keep going? Uh, yeah, I, I would note a little bit that uh, we've talked about Barkov, Couturier, Kopitar, Bergeron, and they're all extraordinary mm-hmm. two-way centers. A lot of the rest of these guys on this list, or on our list, um, are not especially great defensively. Like, they're not yeah. dominant. What they do is they outscore their competition. And I think that as much as I think we should value uh, really strong defensive two-way players, if you outscore your competition like Sagan does, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. you don't have to be that great defensively to be really effective. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good thing to keep in mind, like, with, with pretty much all of these players. Because we are talking about elite, elite players. Uh, 16, I have Nick Backstrom. Mm-hmm. Even two years ago, he would have been much higher on the list, but he's, he's fallen off a little bit. Yeah. Uh, still, still very good. Yeah, I had him five. So he's probably <laughs> the biggest <laughs> yeah. divergence. And I'm, I am, like, to a large extent, really still crediting how he's been over his career. So, like, I'm probably just slow to react to his decline. But I, I just, I believe in my heart that Nick Backstrom has never gotten enough credit for how good he is. Uh, Which he is true. Ovechkin stra- uh, shadow. So this is my stand for Nick Backstrom was putting him five on this list. Yeah. Um, 17 and 18, I have two, for- well, one former Buffalo guy, one current Buffalo guy. Ryan O'Reilly at 17, Jack Eichel at 18. Uh, I had trouble ranking both of these guys. Mm-hmm. O'Reilly because, again, he gets kind of just brutal usage with t- pretty bad teammates because he's in Buffalo. <laughs> um, very tough zone starts. Uh, a lot of PK minutes, a lot of uh, minutes against top competition, and he very obviously improves his team's shot and goal rates, which is which is important. Um, but he, again, his individual offense is really nothing to write home about at all. Yeah, uh, Eichel uh, has had less success at elevating his team last year, notwithstanding. Last year, he kind of showed for the first time that hey, the team is actually much better with me on the ice than off. Um, and I think Eichel is the one guy who, if we look at this even six months from now, we could be like, wow, what is he doing there? That is a stupid list because he is so low. And I, I get that. Um, yeah. I, I, like I, I wanted to lowball Eichel probably just because yeah. it's fun to laugh at Buffalo. The reality is if you put Eichel on a team where he's playing with like a with non-zero players, number yeah. of good defensemen, his shot yeah. impacts are going to look a lot better. They'll get the puck to him a lot more. And he's probably going to, you know, push 90 points at some point. So yeah. Exactly. Like, and you just watch Eichel play, and visually, he's so talented. It, it, much like McKinnon in previous years, it's just you, you watch him, you're like, this guy is one of the best players in the league. I don't care what the stats say. Yeah. And then, you know, the stats show, oh, you know, he doesn't have amazing shot impacts. And again, I should clarify that when I say doesn't have good shot impacts or great shot impacts or whatever, I'm talking about relative to first-line centers. Like, I'm not saying that Jack, Jack Eichel is worse than, I don't know, Christian Dvorak or something. <laughs> or, like, he's, he's worse than Mikhail Backlund to actually choose a good center as yeah. opposed to Dvorak. Um, because his shot impacts aren't good. It's like, no, a lot of these guys, as you said, they can outscore their shot attempt issues because these are the few players who can elevate shooting percentages consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's kind of contextualized in the, with the fact that we're comparing them to other top-line centers. And with Eichel, his numbers in that regard don't compare that well to other elite centers so that dropped him a bit on my list what dropped both of them on my list and maybe this is unfair is that and especially with O'Reilly like yes you he improves his team a lot by when when he's on the ice but he improves a very bad team 
So the bar is low, mm-hmm. right? Whereas someone like Patrice Bergeron, without hit Patrice Bergeron on the ice, Boston is still a 50%, above 50% shots, above 50% goals. Mm-hmm. And he improves them to a ridiculous degree. That is more impressive to me than Ryan O'Reilly, who takes an AHL team and lifts them up to merely bad. <laughs> now we're merely bad. <laughs> the slogan of the Buffalo Sabres. <laughs> so yeah, that's my little spiel on O'Reilly and Eichel. Uh, both awesome. I'm very happy that Buffalo traded O'Reilly, to be honest. I know. That was a mistake. Really <laughs> yeah, I, I don't get why. And all for having the temerity to be like, yeah, I mean, it sucked losing so much. Like, don't you want players who don't like yeah. losing? I swear, that's a good thing. Actually, it was good that our team was garbage and finished last in the NHL for the uh, third time in five years. Actually, yeah. I enjoyed that a lot, and I'd like to do it again. <laughs> Doesn't Jack Eichel throw, like, miscellaneous tantrums every five days? Like, Yeah, he, like, knocked over a trash can or something after some, like, game in March where they just stunk up the joint. It's, like, it's good that he cares, I guess. And then, like, they'll write an article being, like, he has the passion to lead this team. I'm, like, he can't play all six defense positions. That's the problem. Yeah. Uh, I would and, be and, like, a there's lot... nothing wrong with... <laughs> now it. we're, like, self-conscious about I which know, one of us right? interrupts we're the other. I know, it. Um... Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think there's a problem with Eichel being, like, passionate about that. But it's just, like, I, I just didn't get why they traded O'Reilly. But anyways, we're getting sidetracked. Yeah. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, um, I would actually be, I don't, I wouldn't be scared that they would catch us. But I think Buffalo would be, like, a stealthy threat for a wild card if they had kept Ryan O'Reilly. Uh, Especially I, with someone like Skinner. Uh-huh. Uh, like, like, they would have, you know, two good lines there. Their defense, I think, would still be not especially great even with like i'll be interested to see how the new the new superstar does but like they they would be interesting i would say like i I think they would like narrowly miss the playoffs now i think they're going to be like an 80 point team again yeah i mean the i think the most emblematic thing of their defense is that they acquired matt hunwick and it was an upgrade yeah (laughs) i mean that was tragic but uh yeah um okay Okay, last two on my list. 19, I had Jonathan Taves. Uh, mm. No longer the elite player he was in his prime, but still very good. And then 20, I had Evgeny Kuznetsov. Yeah, I had Kuznetsov at 19. Taves didn't quite make my list. Uh, the guy I had instead of him at 17 was uh, Sean Monaghan. I guess yeah, he was, is... like, he was my 21, basically. Yeah, he, he's a very good, uh, solid player. Um, I guess this is the podcast where I just, like, I'm really high on Calgary. I didn't really intend for this to happen. But uh, I think that if that team ever gets some goaltending, suddenly a lot of these names like Monaghan and Gaudreau will, I mean, they're all, they're known to be good players. They're known to be very good players, but I think people will sort of remember how good they are when they're on a team that isn't getting shelled. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's our list on the bubble. I had guys like Braden Point, William Carlson, Vincent Trocek, Mm -hmm. Uh, Logan Couture made your list. He didn't make mine. Um, Kadri didn't come particularly close my list he probably would have been like 25 or 26 something like that yeah i think Kadri is like a, a quite good second line center and he's like an absurdly overqualified third line center yeah exactly uh yeah uh, anyway it is a lot of fun having two guys who are legitimately at least close to top 10 on this list with the prospect of one of them being top five very soon yep um so yeah, uh, by and large, it's a. I thought the NHL actually did a pretty nice enough job with their yeah. top twenty centers, and certainly this is a lot more fun than it would have been when we were playing David Steckel as our first line center. 
Absolutely. Um, so I think that pretty much wraps it up for us. We only went 10 minutes over our normal 90-minute <laughs> uh, allotment, which is which is good. These podcasts are stretching longer and longer. We're, soon oh, yeah. we're going to have like a 24-hour podcast. It'll be Lord of the Rings, the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Fulman, anything you want to tease at Pension 10 Puppets before we go? Uh, we have our ongoing top 25 under 25 thing where we rank the best young players in the Leafs organization. Uh, I have Monday morning's entry. Um, so you should uh, keep an eye out for that if you're looking. That'll be number 16 on the list. Uh, and if you've been following along, it's a fun series. You can uh, read up on all sorts of young players in the system. So keep an eye out for that. Yep. Uh, I have another an article coming out this week for the top 25 under, under 25 where I have I'll give you a hint it was a it's a defenseman um and yeah it'll be some point in this week obviously not Monday I also have a piece coming out Monday that explores whether the Leafs can potentially be the best offense since the 2004 lockout and the answer is maybe <laughs> um but that that's it for us uh once again I do want to take a quick moment to say if you do want to volunteer for camp uchiegas uh just visit ooch.org o-o-c-h.org it's a great cause you can do a lot of uh, awesome things and if you like working with kids then it's it'll be right up your alley uh that's it from us you can find all of our stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com you can also follow us on twitter at rv and at at fulman thank you for listening and we'll see you in a couple weeks <laughs>